0: Under I'm going to here on the Rock of Talk. It's Saturday afternoon, time for Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. As always, you can catch him here every Saturday afternoon,
1: interviewing some of the most interesting guests anywhere in Albuquerque and uh, having the kind of conversation only Jeffrey can have. We
0: welcome him here into the Kiva. And we thank him and his guests for all that they do to bring more and more
1: attention to this ever-growing medium we know as the Rock of Talk. Uh, Jeffrey Candelaria, take it away. How are you?
0: Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Thank you again, Eddie Aragon, for producing the show and providing this format. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2. P.M. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria only on the Rock of Talk 1600 Kiva AM amplitude modulation. If you don't have the Rock of Talk on your smartphone, please download it today and you can hear not only my shows but all the shows uh, throughout the week only on Kiva 1600 AM, the Rock of Talk. We are going to have, I promise you, a very insightful, very provocative, very interesting conversation about uf- 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 ufology, excuse me, UFO uh, and UAPs uh, here in a moment. But I'd like to, as I do regularly, uh, make a community announcement uh, through my partner, Fundaxi. Uh, part of the Pizza 9 local establishment here in Albuquerque, we are doing a community fundraising event on Thursday, January 27th, all day long, uh, through a partnership also with Rio Rancho Chamber of Commerce. And again, Fund Daxi. its a—it's a fundraising uh, apparatus. We can help you fundraise, and there's no cost to you. The fundraising source—if you dine at any of the three following restaurants, part of the proceeds will go to the. Rio Rancho Community Foundation. So go to Cactus Brewery, Slate Street uh, uh, Cafe. It's actually Straight Sleet Bar and Grill in Rio Rancho and or the Pizza 9 in Rio Rancho. That's Cactus Brewery, Slate Street in Rio Rancho and or Pizza 9 in Rio Rancho. And if you dine there next Thursday, the 27th, anytime, uh, you will uh, not only have a great meal and a great experience, but you will also contribute to the Rio Rancho Community Foundation. Thank you to Fundaxi. All right, let's get right into it. So, when I was about eight, eight years old, somewhere in there, I read a book about UFOs. Partly because I was always interested in just uh, aerodynamics, space, you know, science, and also because that particular book talked about. UFOs being particularly recognized in a state called New Mexico, where I happen to live. So it was interesting there, and of course, about a, a year later, we had the moon landing, and I remember watching that, all the grainy uh, film, uh, and I was just so fascinated by, you know, space and and the technology, the science behind it, and ever since then, I uh, I've had this fascination with with the ufo discipline the ufo world not because of the little green men kind of triviality of it but because of the science perhaps behind it and also the motivation behind it and since then you know i've made a a real effort to really study it very seriously and I've had the pleasure about two years ago of making an acquaintance with my guest. His name is David Marler. He is nationally recognized, really internationally recognized, as somebody who has not not only a lifelong interest in the UFO subject, but has actively investigated, researched the subject for more than 30 years. Uh, he joined, for example, the uh, UFO network called MUFON in 1990 as a field field investigator, trainee, Since then, he has served as a field investigator, a state section director, as well as the Illinois state director. So this person has a a great deal of experience, very, very serious experience. Also, I mean, he has a resume here that's three pages long, so I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. But he has also, uh, he has evidence in historical research. He has written a book called Triangular UFOs. An estimate of the situation here, he has provided a comprehensive analysis of triangular, so we're talking about configuration here, triangular UFOs, and he has collected uh, collateral and analyzed hundreds of reports, and in the process he has created a detailed profile of these objects with a rich narrative of their history i've been to his home and half of his house is a repository of information of over a hundred years of of detailed documentation of this particular subject called ufology and again right before we get into his actual uh, on the air presence one last uh, point about mr david marler in november 2020 he became the recipient of the world's single largest historical collection of UFO case files in the world. I can go on and on and on. Welcome to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari. David.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey. It's great to be here again.
0: Well, you know, a lot has happened since I had you last on the show about six months ago. And what we're going to do today with the topic of unidentified unidentified flying objects, also known as unidentified UAPs, What's the acronym, acronym for UAP again?
1: Uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena.
0: Very good. Uh, we're going to do kind of a timeline sequence uh, for the recent, you know, time frame, let's say the last two, three, four, five years, because a lot has happened in this, in this world of, of UFOs, UAP, UAPs, particularly the last three or four years. So let's start with what happened in December of 2017.
1: Yes. Uh, really, that's when uh, a shift occurred with regard to the mindset and the skepticism regarding the UFO subject. Uh, Jeffrey, as, as you know, growing up in the 70s, uh, much like myself, there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of ridicule, um, and that skepticism has gradually eroded since December 2017 with the release of a New York Times article. And it disclosed that there was a top-secret Pentagon UFO or UAP program it, looking at and evaluating not just UFO cases, but military UFO cases, those that could pose a potential threat to national security. And in point of fact, as that information came out, we uh, found that there were a number of incursions into military operations areas, sensitive military areas, and military activities involving unidentified aerial vehicles. Uh, Again, we can divorce ourselves from whether you believe or disbelieve in UFOs. The the fact of the matter is military for decades has tracked, observed, filmed, and uh, cataloged these UFO reports. Uh, The case files I have at my home, some of those are the original Air Force files from Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who investigated UFOs for the Air Force for 21 years. Those files contain incredible testimony, and whether we're talking civilian UFO sightings or military UFO sightings, as I always like to say, again, divorcing yourself from your belief or disbelief in the subject, if you have jet pilots, uh, fighter pilots who are trained observers, who are trained to fly multi-million-dollar aircraft, if you have police officers whose testimony in a court of law could convict someone of a crime, either these people are credible or they're not. Yeah. And just because they say they saw something they couldn't readily identify in the air does not immediately disqualify them. Yeah. And so I feel that we need to at least take this testimony seriously. And uh, since that New York Times article in 2017, the government has really stepped forward and has publicly started looking at the subject, acknowledging the subject. Um, as I say, we're in a new era now. Yeah. Uh, we're no longer debating do UFOs or UAPs exist. The government has stated matter-of-factly they did. They yeah. do. Uh, the June 25th report last year. Pentagon UFO report. It was part of the uh, 2021 uh, uh, National Defense Authorization Act requirement that they provide a report to the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, which was being headed up by Marco Rubio at the time. And they did release a report. And they talked about 144 military UFO cases. Only one could they explain away in conventional terms. Yeah. And they go on to state, both in the report and subsequent press releases. These are not just visual sightings. They were tracked on multiple radar systems, multiple sensing apparatus, and even satellite imagery.
0: Yeah. My guest is David Marler. He is an internationally recognized, very credible ufologist, and he has actually lectured. He's met with people in uh, actually at the Pentagon about this uh, topic. He's had some of those people actually over to his repository to review documents that only David has. And again, what the point that you made, again, Jeffrey Candelari, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelari. By the way, if you'd like to sponsor my show, get a hold of me at Jeffrey, J-F-F-R-E-Y, dot candy77 at gmail.com, Jeffrey.Candy77 at gmail.com. If you'd like to sponsor the show, I'd like to thank uh, Pavlos Panagopoulos for sponsoring. I'd like to thank S3 <clears throat> Security for sponsoring the show as well. But I want to, before we continue, what you said, that's a watershed moment. It's it's a salient point Our own government—remember this, listeners—our own government recently, the last two, three years, has admitted on file in front of God and everybody and documented that UFOs or UAPs, unidentified flying uh, phenomenon, exist. Mm -hmm. So it is no longer—the question is no longer, are UFOs real? The question is now— you know, let's talk about the science. I'm interested in the science, the hardware part of it, and the motivation piece, which we'll talk about later. I could care less about what they look like necessarily. And I think the the what they look like kind of uh, curiosity factor is what in a lot of ways engendered, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the ridicule. Uh, even throughout the last sixty hundred years when this kind of thing has happened, I don't think enough was talked about the science of what was seen or the motivation. It was always, oh, they're little green men. What do they look like? And and that in and of itself engendered, in my opinion, a lot of ridicule and uh, a lot of I, ignominious, kind of, you know, it, it, you know, you, you're an idiot. What, what do you mean with little green men?
1: I would agree with that, Jeffrey. One thing I would interject, though, is also in in, in the interest of full disclosure, many quote unquote UFO believers have done a disservice to the subject, uh, you know, readily accepting anything, which obviously, you know me, I do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I evaluate each case on its own merit. Which is
0: science, being cynical about things. It's taking
1: no. a scientific approach towards the subject, being objective. As I like to say, it doesn't matter what people believe regarding the UFO subject. It doesn't matter what I believe after thirty, going on 32 years of investigating the subject. Yeah all that matters is the data. What does the data reflect? And that's what I've been trying to do over the years is really objectively examine that data, share it with individuals. As you mentioned, I, I do yeah. have a contact, uh, former DOD official that is working on Capitol Hill. I've been uh, forwarding information to him, which he has been uh, sending up the chain. So I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm not just talking about what's going on on Capitol Hill and within DOD circles from an outsider perspective. I do have a glimpse into the inside by virtue of my connection. Um, And I will tell you that um, it has changed. And as you said, the question is no longer are UFOs real. The fundamental question is what are UFOs? And just for a point of clarity, the DOD, the Pentagon, the various intelligence agencies, they're viewing this as one would expect, given their job through the lens of national security. Sure. If we have objects of unknown origin and we don't have to go to the space alien explanation, but let let, let me be very clear on that. If we have objects of unknown origin that, as the report states, are exemplifying exotic flight characteristics where they can literally fly rings around our state-of-the-art aircraft, how can that not be of defense interest? We talk about North Korea being able to launch an ICBM, a supersonic ICBM. Well, That's over there. We're talking about objects that are moving in controlled airspace in military operations areas within the continental United States and along the coastline. And these have been seen by pilots, tracked by radar. It is incumbent upon these people. This is why we pay them (laughs) with our tax dollars to defend and identify any potential threats to this country. You
0: know, I always think about the end of Nazi Germany, World War II may excuse me probably april probably if i remember my history i think it was february march april when the nazis actually had in airspace over europe and parts of britain a jet aircraft
1: yep. it's
0: almost akin to that in a way because we were still you know with our propeller the are i think we had the fly, the super Fortress, the mm-hmm. b-29s and the you know those can you imagine if you're in a prop aircraft flying over Dusseldorf and all of a sudden a Messerschmitt flying at 800 miles an hour where your top speed is maybe 480. I mean, it's almost akin to that. It The obligation of, of the Allied Forces was to understand that science, right?
1: Absolutely. And what's interesting is when you look at the Pentagon report... Even though they have a list of potential possibilities as far as what these things could be or where they originate from, one is foreign adversaries, as one would expect. That's certainly much more prosaic than, saying, extraterrestrials. Sure. Um, But— Buried within the report itself, they actually have an interesting statement where they state that they have no intelligence to suggest that this is coming from a foreign adversary. So I find yeah. that to be very interesting. I
0: think that's part of, and you certainly know more about this than I do, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler, internationally recognized. And by the way, David lives in our midst here uh, in the Albuquerque metro area. Uh, he is a nationally recognized ufologist. He's written a book called Triangular uh, UFOs. And... Uh, that's probably available on Amazon as well. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. very good. Uh, but I think that's that's also uh, a function of the the. Well, let, let's move into uh, the. I I, I don't want to digress too much, but getting back to your topic about the science of what was seen, and I think most of us have seen that that pilot that had that aircraft that was almost spinning, it was traveling at, you know, a thousand miles an hour, no wings that we could actually detect, No, no smoke trail, there was no ejection trail. So just understanding the aerodynamics of what we looked at, I think, and this is a clumsy way of making my point, even the Pentagon recognizes that no country, even as advanced as they might be, maybe 10 years up, you know, like the Germans were probably twenty years in advance of anyone else on the planet in in the forties. Because keep in mind, they had a rocket called the V two. They had a jet yes. aircraft. They had the best tank. But that was probably fifteen years into the future as sure. to everyone else catching up. But correct me if I'm wrong. This thing that we have seen and some of the the, the footage that military has, it's 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 a hundred years into the future something it, like that right
1: it, it is and that's just not my opinion that's the opinion of people i've talked to that are working again in dc on the subject that These things, whatever they are, are, I hate to use the term, light years ahead of where we are. We're not talking, as you mentioned, just 10, 15 years down the line. One example, which I will cite, uh, the videos that have been released through the DOD, which, by the way, the DOD has officially endorsed. I mean, these aren't just random videos that we find on YouTube.
0: Yeah, Department of Defense, just Department of Defense
1: videos uh, shot by, uh, in in all three cases, uh, naval jet fighters. Um, In these cases, though... They were using advanced FLIR technology, forward-looking infrared. So to your point, when we get into the science of the technology, with any type of aircraft today, if we're looking at it with an infrared imaging system, we can see heat signatures, which are indicative of combustion jet engines, fire, heat, et cetera. Yeah. These objects have no heat signature, Right. nothing to indicate jet propulsion. In addition, these things fly in what we call nonlinear movement. In other words, it doesn't go from point A to point B in a straight line right. with gradual acceleration. These things can go from 80,000 feet down to almost sea level in a matter of a second or two. And by the way, again, not just track visually, but on radar. The and, you just and, radar and keep system.
0: in mind, just to remind our listeners, the, the pressures, the physics of... If you have an aircraft of any kind, I, probably the fastest aircraft we have, we're not talking about rocket ships, but even rockets leave us a, a heat signature. Rockets travel about 25,000 miles an hour, if as I, as I recall. Only on straight talk Jeffrey you uh, The fastest planes are maybe Mach 3, something like that. So, again, not to get into nomenclature, sure. but that's about 1,800 miles an hour, something sure. like that. But once you start going beyond that, just the rivets that keep the plane together will begin to to be compromised, right? So, yeah, the, so talk about even the physics of traveling that fast. And absolutely. if you're a person inside that craft, the human the human body physiologically physiologically, can't sustain or can't stand that much G-force.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the pressure exerted, you would basically be a, a, a pool of jelly <laughs> on the inside of that vehicle uh, if you were to endure that type of speed, that type of G-force. But in addition to that, Jeffrey, I'd like to add that when we see that these objects are moving, So fast, high velocity, they're exceeding the sound barrier, yet in many of these military cases, and I might add in civilian reports prior to all of this, these objects can go supersonic, yet do not generate a sonic boom. Yeah. We have yet to understand the physics as to how how is that occurring.
0: Yeah, so they're defined all kinds of physical laws as we know it. And just to remind our listeners, Mach is another word for speed of sound, which is about 600 and some miles an hour.
1: Yeah, yeah, 750, somewhere in there. There you go. Again, depending on air density and and altitude.
0: Sure, Sure. Just like if you take off. Uh, from Albuquerque in a commercial jet, you only have to go about 118 miles an hour. But if you're at sea level, you only have to be at about 110 or something because of the density of the air. Just to remind our listeners, that it all comes down to physics.
1: But Jeffrey, uh, taking these two things, the government acknowledging the subject and, as you mentioned, the physics, as a result of this, it has created fertile ground for new people to come into the fray to start looking at the subject. And since we've spoken last, uh, Dr. Avi Loeb, who is a leading astronomer at Harvard, has actually created the Galileo Project, where he and mainstream scientists are now looking at the UFO subject from a scientific basis. And um, that's very encouraging. In addition to that, Bill Nelson, the administrator for NASA, just in October of this year, made a series of public statements acknowledging and giving credence to the reality of the UAP's UFOs, acknowledging that they do exist and that it is incumbent on us to determine what they are. And he even went a step further. He wasn't just clinging to the idea that maybe this is a foreign adversary. He conceded that some of these could be of extraterrestrial origin. Now, think back when you and I were kids. Do you ever think you would hear a NASA administrator no. acknowledging this?
0: No. In fact, the reverse. They would deny it, divorce themselves from the topic, or ridicule the situation. In fact, Heinrich, to your point, during Project Blueprint of, what was it, 56 to about 69, something like that. Yep. He was invited to be part of the team so that when something happened, like let's say uh, the Socorro incident in 64, he could attach himself to the military and say, oh, no, that was not a UFO. It was an optical illusion based on, you know, cloud, cumulus cloud shade, you know, providing uh, an illusion because of, uh, you know, heat rising from the desert sand that causes whatever the heck it could be. But ultimately he, who was ultimately... He ended up accepting that something was going on at the end of his tenure with Project Blueprint, right? Yes. So he was actually going to be a foil, almost a patsy, to will all scientifically create something to justify what somebody supposedly saw. But at the end, he became—I don't want to use the word believer, but he accepted— that there was something pretty strange
1: happening. Well, it's interesting, Jeffrey, when you look at the evolution of Dr. Hynek's philosophy regarding the subject, it's like many people that previously had no knowledge of it. And I'm, I'm talking intimate knowledge, really getting into the cases, interviewing the witnesses. Um, you know, people you know might ask me, what do I think of uh, nuclear power and the benefits? It's like, you know what, I've never done a, an extensive analysis of nuclear energy versus other forms of energy. I'm not going to comment yeah. because I don't have an educated opinion. Right. Heineck developed an educated opinion by virtue of interviewing these witnesses, by virtue of seeing the obfuscation on the part of the Air Force, coming up with ridiculous explanations that didn't fit the facts in many cases. And there was this gradual evolution of his perspective on the subject. And uh, I think we're seeing that right now. Yeah. Given this new climate mainstream scientists like Dr. Avi Loeb and others are now looking at the subject and as they start peeling that layer back they're realizing there's a lot more to the subject than most people think.
0: Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler, my guest is an internationally recognized ufologist. Well the other thing that's happened is our ability to scrutinize this kind of activity is much more advanced today relatively speaking than it was in 1969, 1959 and also to your point the military is best equipped to assess, analyze, scrutinize this kind of thing than some amateur ufologist sitting on top of a hill with some, you know, binoculars. I mean, that's what the military does. Absolutely. And, and they've recognized and admitted in front of God and everybody, there's something going on. We don't know what it is. It's defying science, probably not any country that we're aware of. So you you extrapolate and infer what they're saying, it's probably not from here.
1: Exactly. The science, at least. Exactly. And Jeffrey, you bring up a great point because many of us have speculated that it's interesting. Roughly around 2004 is when this new Aegis radar system was developed, and it has such high fidelity to your point. We feel that perhaps our technology is getting to a level of sophistication where we're now able to detect these things more readily. It may not be that we're seeing an increase in frequency, rather our awareness based on the sophistication of systems. The development
0: of the microscope. Uh, Bacteria was always there, or paramecium, we just never knew how to review it, but there it is.
1: (laughs) And and speaking of technology, you know, just taking it to the larger larger context of extraterrestrial life, uh, you know, we had the James Webb Telescope recently deployed. Yeah. And, you know, talking about sophistication. That's exciting. you You know, historically we have the Hubble Space Telescope, which has brought back tremendous Imagery of, of the universe. Changed
0: our way of looking at science and the universe. Changed the, physics.
1: The James Webb telescope is going to be the reflective surface is going to be 5.6 times larger. Yeah which means it's going to collect that much more information. But the Hubble Space Telescope only looked at the visible light spectrum and the near ultraviolet and near infrared. The Hubble's, or the uh, James Webb Telescope will be looking at the infrared spectrum and will be able to peer back further in time. And that's what's really interesting about yeah. the, the science on this. Well, it's when a we're window look, to the past. When we're
0: looking in space, I, I had an ex-girlfriend. She was dumber than a rock, but she was pretty. And I, I tried to explain only on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaire that when you're looking at the sun, which you shouldn't do, in theory, it's eight minutes ago. Sure. Could not understand that yeah. concept. Yeah, tried to go to the past. You know, you're looking at Alpha Centauri, that's 28 years ago. It took that light that long to get here. So when you're looking at a galaxy, if there was a supernova that we see now, that actually happened perhaps thousands of years ago. So this telescope, to remind our listeners, it's it's going to be thrust about a million miles from planet Earth, so you're going to have very little You know, light pollution that we understand and an obfuscation of smog and pollution, all that. It's going to be a more sophisticated item than the Hubble telescope launched in 93. And remember that Hubble telescope changed the way we saw physics and the age of our universe. I think it was 8 billion. Now it's 13 billion. Who knows what this new uh, really eye into the into the universe is going to provide to us, but it also does something else. It reminds us we're not alone.
1: Absolutely. And that, that's what I mean on the larger context as we're talking about UFOs, UAPs. Really, what we're talking about is the universe and our place in it.
0: Yeah. My guest, David Marlar, internationally recognized ufologist and uh, straight talk with Jeffrey Candler. Like, I think I'd mentioned this before, but when I was a kid watching Star Trek with Kirk and Spock and them guys, uh, I always wondered, why can't the, the ship... Traverse beyond the Milky Way because they were always in our galaxy. And then I recognized as I studied astronomy a little more, even traveling at the speed of light, one hundred eighty-six thousand miles per second, it would have taken a hundred thousand years to traverse our own galaxy. Yeah. That's how that's how big the universe. That's just our galaxy. Can you imagine that?
1: It's amazing. And you know, going back to Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, uh, I think he's a man of vision. Uh, You know, his background is pretty impressive, Um, but I think he he is willing to concede that the universe is much more vast, much more dynamic than we've ever imagined. And I think for someone in his position at this time, given the UAP subject, given the James Webb telescope, we need someone like that that's willing to look at the possibilities. And really, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about, examining possibilities. Uh, And Absolutely. Again, you don't have to be a diehard believer or a UFO skeptic. It's simply exploring the possibilities of the universe that we live in.
0: Well, and, and think about this. Our listener, straight talker Jeffrey Candelari, internationally recognized ufologist uh, David Marler. I mean, 280 years ago, we were dealing with no physics until Newton. Then you had Newtonian physics, which dominated until, you know, probably Einstein, who saw that the universe actually, the, the, the space itself, Actually, can, it's almost like a fabric, depending on mass, can stretch, can move. like So our interpretation of what we saw the world was based on physics from, let's say, Plato or, or the Greeks. Sorry, not Plato. He was more of a philosopher of the Republic. Forgive me. And then we had Newton, Newton mm-hmm. who really revolutionized science. Then you had Einstein. Now you have string theory. So in other words, our interpretation of whatever science is is not definitive. Science by definition and physics almost by definition is subject to change based on how much we apply scrutiny to it and cynicism to it and and, and are enlightened by it.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like we're maybe at at a, a turning point in history as it relates to all of the subject matter that we're discussing, Jeffrey, in the sense that we look back and for ages people thought the world was flat. And then obviously that was that was turned on its heels by, by discoveries. And I feel that we're almost at that same kind of crossroads, where people are going to look back when you and I were growing up and saying, can you believe they actually thought that they were the alone in the universe? Yeah. I mean, they'll look back in, in, with a, a snort of derision, you know, it's just like, I can't believe they actually thought that they were alone.
0: Well, you know, before Columbus, you know, who the, the folks in Europe were so arrogant or small-minded or whatever, to think there was something even beyond the ocean, let alone different cultures, different folk, you know. So it's it's a lot of times it's what I call the arrogance, the ego of the human experience, the human condition. You know, we tend to be a little arrogant. It's only us. There's only one God. There's only Jesus. I mean, I don't know. Why not have folks from other civilizations, they're curious, maybe, you know, like we are, Columbus explored for lots of motivation, but a lot of it is curiousness of of you know why climb the mountain because it's there kind of thing. Right? Why not have that motivation if you're some person from Zeta Reticuli with science that's you know 300 years beyond ours? Again, straight talk with Jeffrey Candler. My guest is uh, uh, David Marler, uh, internationally recognized ufologist. Before we continue, I I want to retouch and resurrect what we talked about earlier. Folks that are interested in the topic of, of ufology, whether they're just curious about, one, what they look like, two, my interest is more the science of the hardware of it, you know, the, the science of the, the physics, how does it fly kind of thing. But there's also the motivation, mm-hmm. right, which I don't really think we've touched on. A lot of the, you know, movies we've seen in the, the B movies, particularly in the 50s, they're here to dominate us, you know, to take over whatever. But there could be just this sense of, if there's these folks that are not from here, why did we go to the moon? We're curious, right? So there's at least three ways of, of, of reviewing or interpreting this thing called ufology. One, the the hardware, the science, which I'm interested in. Two, what do they look like? And three the motivation. You want to kind of talk about some of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you actually brought that up, Jeffrey. Uh, With regard to motivation, uh, there's been a lot with a lot of people in the general public as well as within the UFO community that have taken issue with the Pentagon and their approach towards this UFO-UAP subject now that they've kind of released it uh, to the general uh, forum, general discussion. And um, quite often you will hear uh, UFOs or UAPs uh, referenced as a potential threat and people take issue with that. They're like, well, these things have apparently been around for a long time, we're still here, you know, they're obviously not violent. Again, we have to understand being in that position. We can sit here as civilians and say that all day long. Well, that's great. If you're working within the DOD, if you're working at the Pentagon, if you're working for various intelligence agencies, you consistently have to view things as quote unquote potential threats. Uh, That does not mean they're hostile, does not mean they're going to be hostile. But if you're faced with, let's say, an outside force, for lack of a better term, that is technologically superior, and th- they're coming from somewhere we don't know, they're disappearing to God knows where, but periodically they're interjecting themselves in our day-to-day lives and right. in military operations, that must be viewed as a potential threat. Sure. I personally don't think that they're hostile, and that's just based on decades' worth of case files, evidence, etc. Um, but if you're within the Pentagon, you have to view this as a potential threat. So I just, the qualifier there is potential.
0: Yeah. And again, on another show, I'll talk a little bit more with you about different manifestations of hostility or the scrutinization based on motivation of these beings or this science, rather. Because it could be science. It could be like their versions of drones, right? It doesn't have to be these little you know these creatures or whatever. It could be their probes, their drones from their particular, you know, origins, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, and just for uh, clarity, I, I feel like it's important to interject at this point that many of these UAPs could be someone else's technology. In other words, not Earth-based. For example, absolutely. But let's be honest. Some of these could be Russian drones. Oh, absolutely. They could be Chinese drones. Yeah. So. I don't mean to paint with a broad brush to suggest that all of these no. might be someone else's technology. As with anything in life, it's shades of gray.
0: Well, you know, again, straight talk with Jeffrey Candler, my guest, uh, David Marler, international ufologist. Your book again, uh, triangular UFOs?
1: Uh, yes, triangular UFOs—an estimate of the situation.
0: Yeah. Again, it's almost like when one for thirty years straight, you look in the sky, and you've whoever you as you've noted. Seventy-nine things that you, whoever you is, can't identify. Well, even if just one of those is what we're talking about, then it exists. Well, we already know it exists, but we've conflated, you know, other things. Like I have, I thought I saw UFOs all my life, and then I recognized it was a it was a launch of a balloon, it was a satellite, it was a this or that. But even if I saw one in my lifetime, it still establishes what we're you know there is something pretty particular, peculiar, rather, happening that we can't explain. And maybe that's what the point is. We can't explain it. And we're, you know, our society, particularly Western American society, we're kind of arrogant. We want to think we know. Absolutely. Almost everything Absolutely. that we experience.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, Jeffrey, since I was with you last, I've been reviewing hundreds of historical UFO case files as part of my research. And, you know, just to, to let your audience know, the vast majority of UFOs, to your point that you just brought up, are explained away yes. conventional meteors, fireballs, weather balloons. I mean, I and in many cases demonstrably so. Where we someone sees a UFO and then we realize there was a rocket launch yeah. in California. Sure, and what they saw were simply you know the exhaust or the vapor trail, or they saw the actual rocket ascending. Most UFOs, I would argue, ninety percent can be explained away in conventional terms. It's that remaining residual 10 percent that's interesting. And that's the ones that we're looking at. And more specifically, that's what the government's looking at.
0: And I think we should also stress that somebody who's been studying this for 35 years, as you have and others that have studied this, you know, with a scientific prism, you know, through that prism for the last 70 years, it isn't necessarily just one set of possible visitation right because we tend to get caught up oh they're all from zeta reticuli or whatever <laughs> i mean it could be you know the universe is so expansive it could be that we've been visited and are visited by different sets of science uh you know entities from different origins correct
1: absolutely, absolutely. And, you know and again for for some context When we look at UFOs, and I mean we being those that are objective and looking at the data and trying to formulate clear, concise understanding of this, this subject, this phenomenon that we're dealing with, it's not that we're going in trying to prove what it is. We're really going in trying to prove what it isn't. Yeah, isn't. We're ruling out those prosaic explanations. It wasn't a meteor, it wasn't a military aircraft, it wasn't a conventional aircraft. And when you go through that process of elimination and you've eliminated all prosaic explanations, you're left with a genuine unknown. Yeah. Now what is that? We don't know. But it's that slow progress in investigating and looking at the phenomenon where we can really distill down and drill down on that small subset and try to make sense out of it, trying to find patterns in the data, which yeah. is what I've been trying to do.
0: But, but I guess to my point, you're not hung up with people like you that study this very seriously, and you're one of the most preeminent researchers of this in the country, and you happen to be right here in our in our city. You're not hung up on it's just one set of craft or no. coming from one place of origin, right? You're no. you're open to it's maybe even likely that you know there are different sources and different kinds of science that we it's not just one kind of science right
1: absolutely and, and the way i like to phrase it jeffrey is we're not dealing with a phenomenon we're probably dealing with phenomena yeah. plural and it may be overlapping in nature yeah and there may be similarities characteristics that exemplify each one, but to your point, it 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 may be a mixed bag. And I I think that's really been a a disservice to the UFO field over the years in the sense that people are trying to take all of this data and fit it into one framework. I agree. And I I always like to use an analogy when I do lectures across the country. Imagine a five-year-old boy or girl sitting on the floor and you give them a puzzle box. There's no picture of what the puzzle looks like and you sit them down and they try to piece this puzzle together. What you didn't tell them though, is there's actually four puzzles and you put it all into one box. Their mental construct is this must formulate one picture. When in reality, they're going to be at odds trying to make sense out of it because, in fact, it's actually four separate yeah. things.
0: Well, I think uh, you know psychologists tell us that the human experience tries to label things to simplify, make, and we try to find patterns. We, we try to find pattern, make order out of chaos. You know, people ask me all the time, "What's my political persuasion?" I'm a libertarian, you know, conservative happen to vote for the damn hypocrite Republicans, (laughs) but that's my interpretation. So there isn't just one thing called a Democrat, one thing called a Republican, one thing, to your point. So um, let's also now talk a little bit about, and again, on a different show, I do want to talk about different manifestations of how we know we have been visited. One, in the 70s and early 80s, it was really popular to talk about cattle mutilations. Mm -hmm. We won't talk about that now. But I think there is there's some, you know, credible science around that. Some people claim that they've been, you know, visited, commandeered. Their bodies have been commandeered. There's a famous case with the, uh, the two folks from, I believe it was New Hampshire or oh, Maine. Betty Black- Barney Hill. Yes. And, uh, I mean, they were scrutinized numerous ways and to their deaths. Uh, you know, their stories of what they believe they experienced could not be broken. Yeah. The famous case over here in Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, Travis Walton mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. 74, 75, somewhere in there. Yep. That's a very credible case. So we'll, we can talk about some of those sure. later on. But I want to talk about now this new, you know, there was an article in the Albuquerque Journal. And of course, you're much more aware of this than I. Uh, Congress is right. It's time to take UFOs seriously. So our own government now is beginning to centralize and unify a department that will begin to study this thing called UFO, UFO, UFOlogy, UAPs. I want you to expand on that, amplify that. But I also want you to answer the question, is the government doing this so that they can, in a sense, own and monopolize the narrative the way they want to own and monopolize the mid-narrative as only government can. So kind of a a very multifarious question, but talk about the centralization of the department and what you kind of glean as to what you think the motivations might be, a, a, be, you know, attached to that.
1: Well, you couldn't have teed that question up any better, Jeffrey. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, actually, you orchestrated that very well, So and you're along the, the correct line. After the Pentagon UFO report came out, there were a number of statements from the Pentagon, the DOD, that they were going to start working on centralizing the collecting of UFO information for defense purposes and working with the various branches of government, various intelligence agencies. And then um, in November of of 2021, uh, New York U.S. Senator Kristen Gillibrand uh, put an amendment into the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act to basically uh, collect information but also uh, allow for transparency, where that information would be available to the general public as well as members of Congress. Interestingly enough, shortly after she put that amendment in, which I might add, and this is a very important point for your audience, it received bipartisan agreement. Now, I know that's a phrase that we don't often hear anymore in the society bipartisan agreement. And I I, I tell my wife all the time, Jeffrey, I find it interesting that uh, in this day and age, the one thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on is the severity of UFOs and understanding and investigating them. Yeah. So. You know, regardless of what you think regarding UFOs, at least it it brought people from both sides of the aisle together. Absolutely. And so uh, what's interesting about that, though, is shortly after that amendment got bipartisan agreement, and before it was signed in uh, by President Biden later in the month, um, shortly thereafter, the Defense Department uh, stated that they were going to reformulate the existing body that was looking at UFOs, which was called the UAP Task Force, UAPTF, and they now have changed that, restructured it, reorganized it into the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. The yeah, AO- only the
0: government could come up with an acronym like
1: uh, that. I, it, Jeffrey, it's to wow. the point. I have to take notes now just to keep these acronyms straight. But again, the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, or the AOIMSG, that is the current group within the Pentagon that is now investigating and collecting UFO information. I
0: think a key word there is management.
1: You seized upon that. Like I said, you teed me up really good with this question because many people believe within DOD circles, within, within Capitol Hill, as well as within UFO circles, that this was kind of a, a roundabout way to try to circumvent the Gillibrand Amendment. And they've actually made public statements that uh, they took a little bit of consternation to the fact that people were criticizing them for doing this and Mm -hmm. that they're not trying to manage the situation. But what people have to realize is, you know, Jeffrey, you and I and your audience, we're used to seeing Democrats versus Republicans. We're actually seeing this UAP subject play out on a much larger uh, framework. Namely, we have members of Congress and members of the intelligence community and that's a much more heated contentious relationship than any democrat or republican could ever have. Yeah, good point. It runs that it runs that that walking that tightrope. We want transparency of government as a democracy, but we also want national security. And national s- security quite often circumvents transparency. And so we see this this tug of war that seems to be taking place right now with members of Congress and the intelligence community as it relates to UAPs. It's going to be interesting. Hopefully when we, we reconvene, we can touch on this, but it'll be interesting yeah. to see. And I, I would ask your audience to, to watch the news over the next four to six months to see what plays out with regard to the UFO subject, UAPs, in, in within government circles.
0: Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler. If you'd like to sponsor the show, we're with you every Saturday, 1 or 2 p.m. right here in Albuquerque. Uh, give me uh, an email uh, communication, jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. If you'd like to sponsor the show. Again, David Marlar internationally recognized. Now, he's a ufologist lives right here in the Albuquerque metro area. I've been to his home. Half of his house is devoted to this huge repository of, of documents that he's collected and amassed over the last 50, 60 years of, of really credible information about this topic. And then you've just recently acquired. Dr. Heinrich's uh, documentation, Dr.
1: Right? J. Allen Heinrich's uh, pers- per- personal material from Project Blue Book, which is really interesting because going back to what we were discussing earlier, Jeffrey, um, you have the official Air Force policy circa 1950-1960 as it relates to UFOs in these documents, it gives you incredible insight into the man, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, because you have the official explanation, and in many cases you'll see him cross that out in red ink, and then put his own little marginalia or comments, where even early on, and I'm talking mid-late 50s, he had issues with the official explanations of many of these cases, and you get to see that reflected in his own personal notes. Um, So, And I would like to add that uh, there's continual data that's being uh, gathered and amassed. Um, I'm working with a friend and colleague in uh, Yorkshire, England, and he will be shipping out a pallet of UFO case files from the UK and other parts of Europe uh, that cover the last 50, 60 years. And he is donating those to my collection. Wow. I'll be receiving those later this year with the intent that ultimately when I die, I have a working arrangement with the University of New Mexico here where UNM will take the entire collection and preserve it for future generations of researchers. Wow,
0: that's incredible. And again, it's a repository of documents that just, uh, it, it, it's really incredible. And just to remind our listeners, Heineck was the official scientist attached to the uh, Project Blueprint uh, effort for 20 years to actually study or review, scrutinize famous incidences around, uh, you know, really around the world, but obviously in the United States, including the famous case in Socorro,
1: right? Absolutely. That was a turning point for Dr. Hynek. Again, there was gradual erosion of his skepticism over years and decades, but in 1964, April of 64, when he met the police officer Lonnie Zamora in Socorro, uh, he was really taken by his character, and he even reflects that in his notes, which I have, his original notes. Um, He was taken by the character, his consistency, and uh, it was really uh, a a pivotal moment for Dr. Hynek. Um, You might say that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. He was already moving in that direction, but that really solidified it, mainly because uh, it's one thing to to see UFOs on radar, it's another thing to see UFOs visually, but in this particular case, there was actually ground effects, uh, physical effects left by the object which parallel a wave of sightings that occurred in 1954 in France and Italy.
0: Yeah. So now that the centralization has been, so it has been approved, right? It's been.
1: Yes. Yeah. The AOIMSG is is now taken over from the UAP task force.
0: Okay. So then is it going to have like, annual reports do you kind of see how that kind of works and will those annual reports again be for your eyes only kind of thing to you know the the security area of our government or will it be because remember there's at least three components right there's there's the security piece like i guess you'd say cia the the uh the, the, the the powers that be that are really you know it's it's the black ops Part of our government. Then you have Congress, which is supposed to represent we the people. Then you have the public. right? Right. So how do you again? Who knows? But how do you actually see information being parsed out?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. (laughs) And uh, I think you and I talked about this uh, previously about the Pentagon UFO report. I I was being asked uh, very early in 2021, what do I think is going to come from that report? And I didn't think there would be much substance, and I was correct. Um, there, There are some salient points that are in that report which really stand out. But as far as having any actual detail, or information that uh, civilian scientists could, you know, bring muster to, it was, it was sorely lacking in that regard. But to your point, uh, the Gillibrand Amendment, uh, as well as public statements, they indicate that there will be regular reports to Congress. Now, they state that they're also going to have transparency to the general public, but what does that mean? It's a very ambiguous statement at, at best. And so uh, I'm tempering my enthusiasm as far as us in the civilian sector seeing much.
0: Yeah, Jeffrey Candelari, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari. We've got about uh, eight minutes or so to go with my guest, internationally recognized ufologist uh, David Marler, lives right here in the Albuquerque area has an amazing repository, it's almost a museum, and I mean that respectfully, of, of just documents, credible documents about sightings, about data collection, just about this whole topic that's really, uh, uh, you know, been extremely relevant, especially because our government just recently admitted UFOs are real. We don't know where they're, where they're coming from, we can't explain the science, and we don't know, again, what I talk about the motivation. And I think that's extremely uh, meaningful as well. So where uh, I want to begin to you know wind up the interview with your book, the UFO uh, topic, probably because of uh, the sighting in 47, when the guy said it looked like a flying saucer mm-hmm. over in Washington State, and then all the B-movies, maybe because they had only props that looked like you know, up caps that look like, <laughs> you know, flying discs. Sure. So we we kind of, are the the public persona, mindset sort of became fixated with flying, flying discs yeah. or you know the the frisbee type Absolutely. looking thing, and the nomenclature took over. You know, the flying saucer thing, which became sort of funny and flippant and almost you could ridicule but really there are a lot of different sightings that look very different in terms of
1: configuration, hence your book. Oh, very much so. To your point, the stereotypical imagery, really, over the last several decades has been that classic flying saucer, not to be trite, but, you know, it's that indelible image from, as you mentioned, the 1950s, 60s movies, um, and other science fiction works. Um, But uh, it's interesting you mentioned the sighting in 47, because uh, I'll be doing some lecturing across the country uh, this year, and... Uh, this year marks the 75th anniversary, going back to 47, of the first time we heard the term flying saucer yeah. being coined. So we're, we're kind of at a milestone right now, which is interesting given the, the change in tenor of the conversation regarding UFOs. Yeah. It's interesting that it coincides with the 75th anniversary of the what we call the modern age of ufology, uh, with the famous sighting by Kenneth Arnold over yeah. Mount Rainier. Um, but to your point, Whether you look at civilian UFO files or even the military files that I have, um, there's a wide array of many things being reported over the decades worldwide. We have most predominantly lights, you know, people seeing lights in the sky, which admittedly can have many prosaic explanations, satellites, shooting stars, etc. But then we get down to structured objects, seemingly three-dimensional structured objects moving through the air in ways that we can't conceive. one particular subset that has really grown, and it is actually one of the the most prevalent UFO types being reported today, are these large triangular black objects. And many people uh, ascribe that to, well, it's just the latest version of stealth technology, which I concede, yes, you know, many of these may be some type of advanced, uh, you know, airframe design uh, by uh, our government. But What I started doing was realizing that there were parallels. Uh, There was a wave of sightings in Belgium from 1989 to 1991, which were tracked on multiple radar systems. Um, There was even an attempted uh, jet intercept by two F-16 pilots, and uh, multiple times they were able to lock onto this object, but as soon as they would lock on, the object would pull away at blistering speed, increasing and decreasing at altitudes, at speeds that we can't even conceive of, much like you alluded to earlier. Um, And so I I thought that was interesting, especially when it compared to other cases I already had on file. And that really was the impetus to start really doing a deep dive into the case files, to look at this particular subset, given the prevalence today of them. I started asking myself, well, how far do these reports go back? And before we went on air, I was mentioning that, you know, since I saw you last, I've been going through hundreds of case files specifically looking for triangular UFO reports and I found a rich history of reports that not only describe triangles, but describe the same lighting characteristics, the same same flight characteristics, as I outlined in my book in 2013, which is the best outside validation for my research, sure. that apparently there does seem to be consistency as it relates to this particular subset of reports. And tying it back to Capitol Hill, I have been Forwarding information on to someone that has been working with congressional staffers and members of capital uh, of the Congress, who are looking at the UAP subject, and they have been taking that information and hopefully taking that up the chain to people that can really make a difference. And once
0: again, physics plays a role because remember the aircraft, uh, until what was it the early fifties, was not a chevron shape wing, it was just like a T-shape with a prop. So by chevroning the wing, you were able to gain more lift and more aerodynamics at greater speed and all that. So even the triangular shape, I mean, it could have some, you know, physics, you know, credibility or purpose behind it.
1: Absolutely. The 1950s and 60s started to show development of the Delta Wing fighters, as well as over in the UK, we had what was called the Vulcan bomber which was a huge triangular flying wing. What's interesting, though, Jeffrey, is just a point of clarification and distinction. The witnesses in the U.K. in the 1960s, and I'm hoping I'm going to get some of these case files in this recent batch I'll be getting later this year where I can really do a deep dive on this, the reports, uh, they used to call these things silent Vulcans (laughs) because not only were they triangular and they were reminiscent of the, the Vulcan bomber, but these objects would move slowly and they would move silently. And the Vulcan bomber would, you know, shake the foundation of your house if it flew over due to the jets.
0: And, you know, another thing we'll talk about on another show is the ability for some of these craft that have been witnessed by very credible people, including military, including uh, Hynek, were the ability for the craft to traverse outer space, uh, atmospheric space, and then the ocean. So now you got different membranes, right? Different mediums.
1: I was just going to say the the actual military term for that is transmedium flight.
0: Transmedium
1: flight. Tmf. Objects going from the water into the air, from the air into space, and from the air into the ocean.
0: And clearly we have no science that
1: can accomplish that. Right. Again, that that is way beyond what we know of as far as state-of-the-art technology. Uh, again, right. we, we have a hard time trying to conceive of that. Okay,
0: looks like we got about two or three minutes left. Do you want to conclude with anything we haven't touched on, uh,
1: David? Well, I'd just like to throw out my website for anybody that is interested in the research that I've done or interested in the subject in general. Uh, my website is www.davidmarler.com, uh, uh, ufos.com, David Marler, ufos.com.
0: Yeah. You know, I really think that the, uh, the telescope, when it's going to be fully deployed, when do we anticipate first, you know, I guess say uh, feedback six months from now, a I, year from now. What do you think? Well,
1: probably six months might uh, six months to a year. It's gonna be. It's still actually traveling out to its ultimate destination. Right. Once it uh, actually uh, gets to that point, then they're going to open it up, and then it'll take uh, a period of cooling. It actually it has to be the right temperature and everything. Of I mean, course, the variables involved in this project are incredible. Well, to
0: remind our listeners, straight talker Jeffrey Larry with Hub- Hubble first went out, there was a a defect in the mirror. Yes. And it was a, it was almost like a foggy, you know, eyeglass kind Absolutely. of effect. So you're talking about billions of dollars of technology that was compromised because of some, you know, <laughs> they didn't polish the mirror correctly, whatever
1: <laughs> celestial cataract.
0: <laughs> but but to NASA's credit, science's credit, it was corrected. Correct. And then once that mirror was, you know, refurbished or whatever, the first images in '95, '96 were just spectacular eye-opening literally versions of our universe
1: breathtaking images uh it, it, some of those i still have on display in my home actually because they're just they're absolutely beautiful
0: are we uh, winding up yeah our producer is uh, giving me the uh, signal here david again it's always great to see you and your insights into this topic are just absolutely fascinating i promise we'll have you back soon david Marlar, don't forget his book triangular ufos Jeffrey Candelaria. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Thank you for producing the show, Eric.